welcome to Towards a Smarter World. This is your host, Cruz Saunders, and I'm joined today by Jack Molisani, the president of ProSpring Technical Staffing, an employment agency specializing in technical writers and other content professionals. Very fortunate to have Jack here. He knows everybody in the industry and has been in the space for a long time. He's the author of Be the Captain of Your Career, a new approach to career planning and advancement which was number five on Amazon's career and resume bestseller list. Jack also produces the LavaCon Conference on content strategy and techcom management, which is held in New Orleans this year, October 21st through 24th, 2018. If you're interested in attending LavaCon, use referral code ATEAM for $100 off your conference tuition. It is an amazing conference, and Jack, I'm really glad you could be here to, to tell us uh, your story, and also, maybe we can start out with the story of, of LavaCon, which is a truly unique forum where so many different roads converge across the content ecosystem at large, writ large across the enterprise market. Um, many streams um, seem to converge at LavaCon, and, and it's a a wonderful community. I've enjoyed participating in it. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of LavaCon? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about the background. Uh, LavaCon started in Hawaii, hence the name LavaCon. The Society for Technical Communication, which is a worldwide organization, one year back in 1998 pointed out that it's a shame that none of the chapters in the Pacific Rim countries ever get to go to their own regional conference because those conferences seem to be on the mainland US. And at leadership day one year, someone said, you know what, we should have a combined region seven, region eight conference hold it smack dab in the middle in Hawaii. And I raised my hand and went, um, I'll run that one. And we had it in the fall of 2000. Our break even point was about 140 people, 560 showed up. It was amazing. Everyone kept saying, I can't wait till next year. I'm going, there is no next year. I can't wait till the next one. I went, hmm, maybe there's a marketing opportunity here. So I started my own commercial conference. Um, we had it in Hawaii since that was part of the success of the last one. But I said, but what would my niche be? Because there's already the STC has their conference. There are other tech writing conferences. And then I realized there weren't many conferences for managers, those of us who had a little gray in our temples. Um, and doing strategy and budgeting. So that's how the conference started. And we were in Hawaii until about 2008 when the economy kind of took a slide. And I brought the conference to the mainland US just to make it easier for attendees to get approval. But I wanted to bring that aloha spirit with us because we always had local food and local pub crawls. And so I started having the conference in fun, walkable places the New Orleans French Quarter, the Gaslap District of San Diego, Austin, Texas. So that's what we do. And uh, we started a tradition a couple of years ago where in New Orleans, we did a second line jazz parade down uh, to where we have our networking karaoke night. And last year we were in Portland. I went, what are we gonna do in Portland? And found out that Portland had a Chinatown. So we did a Chinese dragon parade to our offsite karaoke venue and we kind of started a tradition. So LavaCon is a really good place to network with your peers and have a little fun while you're at it. It seems like there's a lot of different groups that come together at LavaCon. So I know it started out of a tech comms fabric, but it seems to have evolved over the years. Can you talk a little bit about the different kinds of practitioners that find their way into LavaCon? You bet. One of the things we discovered early on 
is there's a convergence of content. It used to be everyone was in their own little content silos. Techcom had their content, tech support had their content, marketing had their content, training had their content, and none of these silos were talking or sharing content. Especially the big international companies that translate into multi-languages, 26, 27 languages. And what we found is as content professionals, a lot of the tech comp people are stepping up and I have an analogy. Uh, in the Disney movie, Finding Nemo, um, you have the seagulls that whenever they see food, they go, mine, 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 mine. And realize that content, there is really a need for like a chief content officer or somebody coordinating the content strategy across these silos. So as the years progressed, we took more and more proactive stance to bring these various content silos to the table, almost like a United Nations of content, where you had representatives from all the silos around a table on equal footing, planning how do we best strategize enterprise content projects. So LavaCon tends to bring those various silos together. So we have people from marketing, we have people from techcom, we have people from tech support, we have people from training, all going, how can we create a unified, reusable content strategy um, that reduces costs and help companies make money? I love the convergence. And of course, that's a really big theme that, that A, we're working with quite a bit is how do we kind of unify content across all of these different environments? And LavaCon is the only conference that I know that's really looking holistically at content sets from the orchestration standpoint across the different silos. I love your United Nations of of content visual and also the theme of the content um, experience ecosystems, creating content experience ecosystems that that um, we have in in New Orleans this year. That's uh, that's very forward thinking. I think as we're we're trying to get these uh, customer experiences that we create from a standpoint in say tech support or technical documentation to marry up with the post sales or the pre-sales customer experiences that are happening in marketing and, and just kind of getting those two worlds together, pre and post sale parts of the customer experience, you know, as well as eventually even tying in the employee experience and everything that uh, training is doing. A lot of the content is just really related, right? I mean, we were traditionally in tech comms used to building these uh, help files and, and, and that seems to changed, right? It's no longer just fixed documentation. It's, it's documentation in response to, to queries that might be coming in from a lot of different places. And so we've got to get the content structured to meet these sort of customer intents. And um, LavaCon is pretty interesting in, in its ability to attract folks from across the spectrum that normally, even in their own enterprises, don't have a chance to talk. So I, I think that's really a, a, an exciting place for, for the conference. And, uh, and, you know, I just wanted to thank you for providing this space for, for the industry to, to have that conversation, that cross-functional conversation. I'll circle back to the employee experience in a second, but you're welcome on the thank you. There are two industry changes, uh, major changes that are driving this convergence. One is that as consumers get more savvy, they're starting to look at user documentation before they buy a product. 
So suddenly, what used to be a dusty manual on a shelf is now being considered as marketing collateral because if the user manual shows the product is difficult to use, they're going to go with a competitor. So marketing now has a, and sales has a, not foothold, that's not the right word, the need to make sure that TechCom documentation is findable, readable, consumable on various platforms because if someone is now looking up how to use XYZ product on a cell phone, you need to be able to format your content to be displayed on a cell phone. Second thing that I see that has changed, that is driving this convergence is the move towards, what do you call it, subscription services, especially for software, web-based software, where you don't buy Photoshop anymore, you subscribe to Photoshop, or you don't buy QuickBooks, you subscribe to web-based QuickBooks. And if a customer doesn't like the experience, they can just leave and go to another vendor. So companies realize that the customer experience directly drives your future sales. And it's so much harder to, to land a new customer than to keep one. So it behooves them, and how often do you get to use behoove in an in a everyday conversation, to spend money um, to make sure that content is an integral part of the user and content experience, not some afterthought like a commodity be, to be acquired for the lowest possible price given an acceptable level of quality. We've just gone way past that, way past that. Indeed, indeed. Let's uh, use that as a bridge to the bigger uh, picture across the enterprise and the state of content in the enterprise. Can you kind of talk through some of what you're observing about the underpinnings of this convergence that, that you've described already and what's driving this sort of movement towards shared and federated efforts within an enterprise? And, and what else do you observe about the state of content in the enterprise today? I think there are two polar opposite things happening. Either innovative companies are jumping on the structured content bandwagon if they're translating their documentation into multiple languages, because that's where the real cost savings from reuse and granular topics comes in. That or companies are just doing their documentation like they always did in Microsoft Word and they don't wanna spend the money, they don't see the return on investment, um, or they're not big enough to move to structured authoring. So you've got two completely different mindsets. And then you got everybody else in the middle who want to move to structured authoring, but they don't know where to start. Where do you even start? Because it can be very overwhelming. Um, it's a different authoring paradigm. It's a different way of thinking about content. Content is now a business asset, not a liability. You almost need to build the case for a chief content officer, or um, just like you have a chief information officer, because it is really a business asset to be leveraged. And I see those kind of three camps in the industry. And what are some of the biggest struggles that owners of these assets are confronting today? Truthfully, I think the biggest problem is selling the idea of an enterprise content strategy or a content ecosystem to upper management. A lot of people, a lot of managers see the value of content reuse and see the value of structured authoring. But oftentimes, the return on investment comes to a different department than the department spending the money to do it. 
So without a project being championed at the CXO level, from a top down, we are going to do this and we're going to spend money to do it right. That's where I think a lot of companies are struggling, especially content professionals are not known for being fantastic public speakers and orators and sellers of initiatives. So you need to learn to do that. Um, one of the little pearls of wisdom that I share with people that the best way for you to sell a content strategy initiative to upper management is to go to Toastmasters and learn to do public speaking and to take an improv comedy class because you learn to respond to questions. You learn to be in the moment. You learn to help self-confidence. And that is what upper level management expects in a project leader, especially one asking for a lot of money to do an enterprise-wide project. So those two skills alone may not be the answer you were expecting, but will help you build a business case almost far better than taking a business case writing class. Indeed. I, I really concur with this general idea that we're, there's this huge opportunity for organizations to unlock the value of content within their organizations at the most senior levels um, by not only treating it as an asset, but tracking it as an asset, right? That idea that every content asset is a P&L, a profit and loss statement. It's, it's got its um, uh, revenue side, the, the top line, the, the value it adds in, in driving uh, behavior. And each of those, those items has, has a dollar amount that can be ascribed to, to the value of particular interactions with content um, sets. And there's a cost to, to produce each asset. And the more durable the asset, the longer it lasts, the more it's influencing behavior, the, the better it, it is performing over time. And, and that is something that when we look at cross-functional assets and convergence, as you were illustrating for the audience earlier, you know, those, those effects all do ultimately require cross-functional collaboration. It's not just something that tech comms does by itself. And... I think that sometimes the prescient uh, leadership that's happening around structure and tech comms gets really easily ignored by the revenue producing side of, of the business in marketing uh, and sales. Um, but sometimes on the, the biggest lessons that marketing and sales need to learn about how to get those assets more valuable comes out of tech comms. So they won't ever really uh, work together outside of committees unless there's an executive sponsor of some kind that's helping to um, create a, a, a unified uh, framework for uh, how the, the value of those two parts of the enterprise need to work together. Um, and that's that C-level advocacy that you're evangelizing. And I really, I think that's... Um, really well suited for, for what we're seeing as well, where, where there's just no way for the, at, at, the, at the practitioner level to wag the dog to, of the entire enterprise, but we certainly can be better communicators about the value of content and the need for it to be coherently organized with collaboration across silos. So what are you seeing and hearing about collaboration across silos? What's working for people? 
before we jump to that, I want to go back two sentences ago when you were talking about building a business case for the CXO level. Bonnie Graham and I taught a how to build a business case workshop at LavaCon one year. And we went around the room just to find out what business problem are they trying to solve. And we went to the first person and said, okay, what business problem are you trying to solve? And, and she said, we need a, a content management system. I said, why? Well, we're currently using Word. So, Word is hard to use. So, and I kept pulling the string and pulling the string and pulling the string. And about 10 minutes later, we get to, but we're spending $50,000 more translation every quarter than we should be. And I went ding, 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 ding. That's the business problem you're trying to solve. You need to solve state to upper management. Why is it a problem for them? Not as why is it a problem for you? And say, okay, the solution to this hemorrhage is a, a structured authoring content management system. But the business problem is either we're losing revenue or it's costing too much. So before we go on to collaboration, I just wanted to drive home that fact that when you're building a business case, you need to make it, why is it a problem for the executives that they will care about? I love that. I love that. And your process of digging in with the participant was, you know, asking why, you know, they say ask why seven times and just kind of digging down into that, where is the dollar and cents impact? We had this really interesting conversation with a uh, very large business to business marketing organization, uh, one of the largest in on the world. And they, they have this um, offer content type and the offer is something that takes maybe two to $3,000 to generate across the different groups that touch it. So not a lot of money. And then, you know, they started to look at, well, how many times do we now need to vary that offer? And we looked at the different market segments it went into. And then we looked into the geographies and then we looked into the language translations. And then we looked at the number of times the offer changed every year. And that very simple asset, which they saw as about $100 to change, about two to $3,000 to create and $100 to change. When we added up the number of variations, permutations, translations, transformations, and hmm. changes that that one asset had, it was over a million dollars. Wow. And it's spread out among many, many different groups. So nobody sees it. Nobody sees the million dollars cost because it's in, it's just in operation somewhere in Asia Pacific or in, um, or in uh, EMEA, um, or it's in a product group, uh, marketing budget shared with, uh, with, with global, but it's spread out in all of these places. And, and, but when you actually do the math, it's unbelievable the cost to, to manually transform content. Yep. So, um, so structure starts to look really attractive when we start uh, encountering all of these different channels that we're trying to get our content out to and all the different places, permutations and variations. Uh, just to, to, to add to what you just said, um, our keynote speaker at LavaCon this year is Karen McGrain author of Content Strategy for Mobile, and she's talking about content in a zombie apocalypse. And whenever there's a new publishing paradigm, whether it's a tablet or a cell phone or a watch or a Google Glass, you know, middle management tends to run around going, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. No, no, it's not the zombie apocalypse. If you put your content in a structured format, it doesn't matter what the next big thing to come along is because you're future-proofing your content strategy. You're future-proofing your content. So again, if you need to transform it, great. What are we transforming to this year? 
and that is another way to justify moving content into a structured authoring environment, then you don't have to be reactive, you can be proactive and just take the next thing that comes along, go home and sleep well at night. Love it. I love it. So what do you see about uh, collaboration that's in real life happening across uh, silos and over the last year? I know it's an ever evolving target, uh, how much people are really working together, but it seems to be growing. What do, you, what do you see? It's definitely getting better. I've heard some people beat the drum for tearing down content silos. I'm sorry, those silos are never coming down. Um, marketing is never giving up control of their content. Tech support is never giving up control of your content. So circling back to my um, uh, United Nations of content analogy, where our job is to bring various players from those content silos together at the beginning of the project and strategize a smooth cooperation, even if it is cooperation amongst some groups, uh, that we are not going to steal your content. We're not going to force you. And you and I talked about this in, I think it was the last time we were in New Orleans about creating almost like a content API where you go, all right, I need the product description for this product. And that's in your department. I don't care how you store it, where you store it, what it's stored in. I just want it back. So you're now creating this interface between multiple content, not just silos, but content management systems and content repositories, where if you don't want to throw away all your legacy software, then you just learn to bridge it and you bring that content together so it's accessible across silos. Love it. Yeah. And it's really, it's really challenging to get to that API when structural schemas within the systems of record are so different. And so what you know, we found is that one of the practical ways there is to, to start getting folks to agree on a master, we call it the master content model, which is a structural schema that the enterprise owns independent of the systems of record. So independent of the CMS or the CCMS or the DAM or the yep. marketing's latest um, SaaS application from the MarTech stack. And they're all very beautiful. I mean, they really are, but there's thousands of them. You know, Scott Brinker, I think recently released uh, one that's got, I don't know, 8,000 now. Um, uh, different applications that marketing people are trying to use to, to present content. I mean, many of them are content experience driven. And, and so the, the, the sad thing is if those each become silos, they were just creating a new copy paste nightmare everywhere. So it's, you know, it, the, the silos are still going to be together, but to your point, we've got to find a way to wire them up and, and get those pieces working and agree upon standards, structural standards. Um, and to jump in here, it's not only agree upon them to stay with them, because I can't tell you how many organizations you go into where departments start overriding the model with their own changes, and suddenly it's not a unified model anymore. So, yeah. yeah to your point, that's kind of like it really needs a, a CCO or at least a C, some chartered organization um, that, that has a a persistent presence. It's yes. not something that, ha that goes away as a project. And yep. the biggest problem we see with modeling is it's a project tied to a website or it's a project tied to a, to a thing, you know, a deliverable. We build the, the, the content model for the user manual or something or the, or the support website. And, and that's not enough. It's got to be. It's got to be able to be those elements. The title from support has to be able to, to to play well when when somebody puts it on the sales website and, and says re related articles um, 
uh, from support you might be interested in, and we've got to be able to pull it in and 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 then semantically tie it together with tags that that are consistent across the groups. And if they're not consistent, we can't get the content really talking. So. Which just reinforces your point about having communication and coordination across silos. Yeah, yeah, the, the, this idea of the United Nations of content under the auspices of the CCO, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting one. I think that's uh, gonna be the theme for next year's LavaCon. Let's just run with that. Okay. <laughs> um, as a customer, I'm curious about the different, your take, uh, on different forms of content consumption that are emerging, you know, steeped in the space, it's pretty easy to look at it as a, as a stakeholder within the content ecosystem, the content community. But just as a customer, I'm curious about your take on on chatbots and other interactive experiences uh, that are starting to bubble up. Oh, don't get me started on chatbots. Yes, get me started. This is a perfect venue for this. I love chatbots as long as they are being presented as a digital assistant. The minute you try to convince me this is a real human behind this chatbot and it's not, it is irritating as all heck, and I will give you a real-life example of both. FedEx, when we ship things to the conference, we usually ship like 30, 40 boxes, and I wanted to go to make sure they all arrived, and for the life of me, I could not find my shipping history option anywhere on the FedEx website. Because what they did is they added a new skin on top of the old system so it's responsive to mobile and they didn't list history as one of the options. So they had a digital assistant and said, how may I help you? And I said, where can I find my shipping history? And check this out. You had to create a new shipment, then click on shipping history, which I never would have thought to do. But I said, thank you. Gave me the answer I was looking and off I went. Um, I was a direct TV customer until AT&T bought them and kind of did what they did with them. But there was a chat bot and I had two boxes in my home, one in the bedroom that I really wasn't using anymore. So I just wanted to return that box. And there was a chat bot and he said, hi, I'm Alicia. How may I help you? And I answered my question. And then there was a pause, like dot, 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 thinking like I'm thinking and typing and back would come the answer. And, you know, how can I help you? And I said, well, I want to uh, return my box. And they said, you want to cancel your service thinking dot, 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 dot. And I wrote back, no, stop. And I got an instant answer going, okay. So it was clear that they didn't understand what I was trying to do. And there was some AI behind this thinking it was answering, but that whole thing about the adding the delay and the type, type typing dot, dot, like there was a real person when there clearly wasn't was so irritating and it got so tired of the customer service that I actually canceled my direct TV subscription and went with another vendor. It was just easier, but it was just so oh, infuriating, I guess, as a consumer to be feel like someone is trying to pull a fast one on me. I'm going, and I can't be the only person who had that reaction to that stupid chat bot. So if it's a digital assistant, tell me it's a digital assistant. Um, and I won't think it's a real human. Um, but yeah, we have a chatbot on the web, Lavacon website. His name's Alfred. And if you want to find something, just ask the chatbot. But he says, I'm your digital butler. How may I help? Um, that's my two cents. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when we're trying to reduce friction in customer experiences by, by introducing friendly, helpful bots. Sometimes they're actually increasing friction and customer frustration and completely failing. Uh, I think it's still early days with a lot of that stuff being able to make a difference for broader experiences. And so 
we've seen interest in chatbots, but there's sort of stepping back as we've realized that they're not magic. No. <laughs> they're not actually magic. It takes a lot of work to even get a, a very tight domain, tightly scoped bot to be functional. So Karen McGrain um, did a podcast on content in a zombie apocalypse that you can hear on the LavaCon homepage. And in that podcast, she says many of the companies who are doing chatbots are doing them now to harvest the questions that people are asking so they can then better address those questions than their normal collateral. Yep. I thought that was interesting. Yep, it's, it's, it's becoming kind of the, um, the alternative to on-screen search, you know, on-site search where we used to be able to get most of our insight about customer intent from their searches on a, in a search box on a website. But it's kind of the next step of that. Now we can pull the data from chatbot sessions and use that to kind of understand customer intents and then model our content um, or uh, direct our content um, editorial functions kind of around the answers to those questions. So it just makes it so much easier to become closer to our customer by hearing them ask questions in human language. And you have to realize that Google on a mobile device is one big chatbot. I mean, I'd say um, the downtown YMCA hours today, and it will read me back downtown YMCA's hours today. The downside of that is when you ask a question, the top response on a Google search or any other search for that matter is the only one the customer hears. And the question then becomes, how did they get to number one? Is it just search engine optimization? Are they buying ads on Google and therefore getting placed higher? We don't know their exact algorithm. Hard to say. So just realize that if you're in an industry where a majority of your customers are on mobile devices, asking questions to find you on the web, that your content has to be formatted for mobile or else it won't arrive as high on the search engine optimization hierarchy. But I say if, because I know for my conference, a majority, I think it's like 87% of the traffic we get is from um, laptops in the office. So we didn't spend a huge amount of time optimizing our site for mobile. It is responsive, don't get me wrong, but because we did our homework, we know our customer demographics, we play to those demographics. So uh, just a word to the wise, know your audience. The first rule of tech writing, know thy audience or any kind of writing, um, enough said. Two more questions. I think we could probably keep talking for hours here, but I <laughs> want to make sure to uh, keep this session uh, as tight as we can. I'm going to tighten it up with a couple of questions here, one on data and the other one on advice for folks in a content career. Um, so let's start with the DITA question. Um, coming from a tech comms background, I'm curious about your insight on DITA versus non-DITA authoring regimes within enterprises. Is, is, are you seeing the standard growing, shrinking, or staying the same in terms of uh, the adoption uh, of, of the standard and, and the value? Um, and for those who don't know, DITA is an XML standard that allows for content portability between systems that, that, that use the standard and, and um, as an XML normalized XML set, we can work with it to, to transform it for different uses through machines. And so it's very, very interesting as a structural basis for content sets, but um, we found it's not the whole answer. So curious about your take on DITA. Well, for those who don't know, DITA stands for Darwin Information Typing Architecture. The standard was developed by IBM. 
and it is definitely growing. Uh, it is growing faster in the United States than in Europe, but I'm not an expert on the European market, so um, I'm not going to talk too much about that. As you said, it is an XML standard. It is not the only standard, and many companies created their own standard. One advantage of DITA is that when an employee leaves or you hire an employee and they've worked in DITA and you're a DITA shop, there is a smoother transition to onboarding that employee or from when you leave to go to a, another company for you to be onboarded there. So there's an advantage of having a standard that everybody uses. Now, is DITA a, the best end for all? No. Does it have its problems? Yes. Is it a standard that's being adopted? Yes. Is it right for you? Hard to cover in a podcast, or at least a po this podcast. <laughs> it's big. It's a big topic. Um, what about final words that you might have for people in a content career or considering one? All right. So a couple points on this. I'm going to circle back to something I said earlier about taking at public speaking lessons like at Toastmasters, which is free in a very supportive environment, and there's chapters almost everywhere, and taking an improv comedy class, those skills will serve you well. The third thing I recommend is take a negotiation workshop, is you are constantly negotiating for project scope, for resources, for time off, your next salary when you transition jobs, for a pay raise. Nobody teaches this in a traditional school environment. I certainly did not have a negotiating class in my degree program. These are all things that you can take no matter where you are in your development, your career development. But realize that this is changing, but it used to be every job was a percentage raise over your last job. So if you start early enough, that those raises compound over time. So if you want to be better compensated down the road, learn to do better negotiating now. As far as getting into the careers, I jumped online and did an analysis of how many people are hiring technical writers versus content strategists. Now I realize there are fewer content strategists because you need a strategy and then all the writers write to that strategy. But I just thought it'd be interesting if we could see some numbers. So I did a search for how many jobs were posted over the past 30 days on DiceMonsterAndIndeed.com. So DICE had 43 tech writing jobs and three content strategist jobs, and that was only 6% of the open jobs. Monster had 158 technical writing jobs and 24 content strategy jobs, about 16%. And then Indeed.com had a surprisingly 216 tech writing jobs and 64 content strategy jobs, a 30% difference. And of those, 60% were mid-range, 20% were entry, and 20% senior. So clearly there's a bell curve on what companies are looking for in content uh, experience these days. They're looking for not the top, top people, or they are, but only 20% of them are, and not bottom, bottom entry level, but that kind of middle of the road, mid-career opening. So there are definitely plenty of jobs out there. And the more specialized you can get, the easier it is for you to sell yourself, I hate using that term, position yourself in the industry, whether you're a data expert or an expert in marketing collateral or pro content project management, like bring those various silos together or an enterprise content strategist where you're coming in and helping multinational companies um, not only come up with a strategy, but implement that strategy because now it's 
and education. It's change management. Um, so many things we do, even though they're part of our technical communication job, so few of what we do, little of what we do is writing. It's scheduling and, and interviewing skills and critical thinking skills and all those things you need to be successful in a content career. That's great. Yeah, and we're starting to see more content engineers postings as well too, which is, which is uh, the sort of technical side of, of content delivery and, and structure. I'm, I'm really curious, I'd love to see a survey at some point about content specialists within the space like metadata experts and, and uh, taxonomists and ontologists and people that are working on all of the affiliated parts around content strategy and, and then production the often overlooked trades, as it were, but uh, they're, they're really starting to become more and more important uh, to organizations. And so I'm kind of curious what the landscape looks like uh, within those little subspecialties. So there's some really interesting uh, data you did just in that, that initial review. I, I would uh, certainly encourage you within this space to potentially do some, some additional surveying or writing about, about mm -hmm. that, because it, it seems to be something that a lot of enterprise hiring managers would like to know as well. So. That may be my next blog post um, subject thereof. Another interesting thing is when I, what that surprised me when I looked for these jobs, of the 120 jobs on one of the websites, only eight of them were contract. So when people are hiring a content strategist, they're really looking, like you said, it has to be a persistent person who's going to be there, not just get in, write up a plan and leave that never gets implemented. So if you're looking for career longevity and job security, strategy is a good place to go into. Awesome. That's a great note. And I think people in the content trades will, uh, will have a lot of job security. I certainly encourage anybody in the college space or looking into career changes to, uh, to consider the content ecosystem overall uh, as a place to apply, apply talents. And Jack Molisani, this has been quite an amazing deep chat. We covered a lot uh, in our time together. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, looking forward to seeing you at LavaCon coming up shortly. And thanks to everybody who's listened to our discussion today. And thank you for having me.